0: Hello and welcome to episode 31 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, I'm speaking with Yobert Abma. Yobert is a co-founder and technical lead at HackerOne, one one of the leading bug bounty service platforms. He's an avid hacker, developer, and advocate for transparent and safe vulnerability disclosure. He and his co-founder have been named one of Forbes 30 Under 30 for 2017 in tech. As a hacker himself, Jolbert has reported critical vulnerabilities to GitLab, Yahoo, Slack, Snapchat, among others. Before founding HackerOne, he was a successful penetration tester for a company he founded with customers, which included Twitter, Facebook, Evernote, and Airbnb. He studied computer science at Hans University in Gronin. In this episode, we discuss his early hacking days, how he turned hacking into a job, why he started HackerOne, security software development, lessons learned as a founder, internet of things, vulnerabilities, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right, Yobert, thank you for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today?
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm good. How are
0: you? I'm doing great. And uh, thanks again for doing this. And you know, I've been doing a little bit of research about, about you as we prep for the show. And from what I've been reading, you've been involved with hacking since you were about 13 years old. How did you kind of get started and what drew you into technology and computers?
1: Yeah, yeah, great question. So I started progra- uh, programming with uh, my other co-founder Michiel when I was 11, and that was uh, more or less by incident because uh, a nephew of Michiel sent us a CD with Visual Basic 6 on it. Uh, maybe you know it. Oh yeah. And um, we uh, we tried to figure it out, but we weren't able to. We were 11 and didn't speak uh, English. And so what we did is we went to the local library and got like this really thick book uh, about Visual Basic. And obviously we didn't know how everything worked, but we recognized the code examples. And so what we did is we um, we kind of typed over all of the code examples. And then once it worked, we would change the code so that we uh, could like let it do what we wanted it to do, uh, but, in, but in a very basic, basic fashion. And so uh, a few years later, um, we were really into gaming and all that stuff. And we try to uh, make like game trainers. So like whenever you would push a key, it would uh, essentially uh, mimic key presses so that cheating became a lot easier. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's what we did almost all day. But because we were always with the two of us, at one point we started figuring out that there's these kind of vulnerabilities, right? And so hacking was obviously very illegal, but because we were both capable of writing like small programs, the one person could uh, write some code and then give it to the other person uh, to hack. And then once the other person would find the vulnerability in that code, um, the person who wrote the code in the first place would go back, uh, introduce some defenses and then, uh, give it back to the other person. And so that way we kind of try to creatively become good at hacking. And, uh, that was around the same time where PHP became a thing. And, Mm -hmm. um, well PHP uh is known for uh how easy it is I would say to to get going with it which also means that a lot of security vulnerabilities are uh come with it essentially and so because uh, back in the day people weren't really paying attention to security we uh did a few things that we weren't supposed to do uh, I think as a, a lot of people have done who have uh, been in the security industry for for 10 to 15 years at least uh but we realized back then that security was something we were really good at, and that we really enjoyed um, uh, hacking.
0: And so, at some point, if I recall, to you, you did something with a TV station hack. What what happened there?
1: <laughs> yeah. So uh, when you graduate, you're you're very good informed. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, when Michiel graduated from high school. Um, you usually give each other a present. And so I uh, I wanted to give a present to Michiel that was not like a boring thing. And so <laughs> what I did was I hacked the local TV station that the school used uh, to update students whenever a teacher is sick or like a classroom change or something like that. And every year after uh, the exams, they would publish a... Like a message on that TV station, they would do a, a small broadcast, and um, with that username and password that I uh, that I that I uh, got um, by hacking the uh, the TV station, the um, we did that broadcast for them um, with one minor change because there was one girl in our year that didn't uh, uh, that didn't graduate uh, immediately and she had to take a re-exam. And her name was Betty. And so we published the exact same message with one minor change being, and Betty, good luck with taking your re-exam. And so n- nothing malicious or, or harmful. Um, and everybody at school thought it was kind of funny. <laughs> but the local TV station was uh, not so much amused. Um, the the cool thing about the whole story was that Michael or Michiel never uh, ratted me out. So he took the blame for something <laughs> that I initially did, which I think, if you think about that, that's when you know you can uh, you can start a company with someone, right?
0: It's a level of trust you gain with them, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. But like, I think back in like back then, we were we were sixteen. Um, we had no understanding of of ethics, like understanding why someone would be mad or upset when you would just prove that something would like could go wrong. Was something that we didn't understand back then, and it's also really hard. I think it, it's still really hard to understand as a as a 16 year old why it would be a bad thing if you would suddenly just hack into someone and tell them about it.
0: Yeah, it becomes it becomes a challenge when you you kind of see the opening and you want to take it, but don't realize that's maybe not the opening you want to take. But you also had some issues too, where where your parents' ISP got contacted. Um, or contacted your parents for some unusual traffic as well. What, what exactly were you doing that that kind of got you your, your your connection flagged?
1: Um. Well, the, the letter that my parents got was uh, was about um, that one of our computers was probably infected with a virus, <laughs> and so my parents were pretty quick to realize that. Well, that's not a virus. That's probably our son and his friends. Um, and I think. That was just some port scanning uh, or some brute forcing on uh, on some uh, like public IP spaces. Uh, back in the day, the we were less into web application hacking. We were much more around uh, like actually breaking into systems just for the the, the um, for the challenge, and uh, that involved uh, a lot of port scanning back in the day. like few. Now that everything almost becomes like a web application or a mobile application, it, that becomes less common. But uh, back then, that was, I think, the the trigger for the ISP to reach out to uh, to uh, to our parents.
0: Yeah, when they see a lot a lot of outbound port port requests going to satellite, uh, right. IP, yeah. that, that'll that'll get you flagged. But you kind of went from there into college, and you discovered uh, that you were still enjoying what you're doing, but also found that there was some vulnerabilities in software plant, um, platforms to manage student grades. Is that correct? And how did how did that kind of come about?
1: Yeah, so when we were 17, our parents, and this was after the ISB incident, uh, our parents essentially said, like, what you can do is really amazing. And they recognized the talent that both Michiel and I had. And they were like, why don't you start doing this in a legal way? Like, why don't you sell your talent and like, just start like a security consultancy company. And uh, the year after we got into college and I'm pretty sure as you can imagine there, there's very few companies who are going to contract to 18 or 19 year old to do their security. Right. right. So we had to like think outside the box and be like, how do we, how do we prove that we can actually do something that is worth some money um, without like hacking them in the first place and, and not telling them about it uh, up front. Uh, so what we came up with was um, an idea of like visiting every local IT meta- meetup, essentially. And every person we talked to, we would come up to them and tell them, you um, we will look at your website or your network or whatever, uh, for 30 minutes. And if we can find a security vulnerability, we will buy your entire company a cake. If we, uh, do find something though, we want to have a meeting and we want to tell you about it. And this is free of charge. And so a lot of people kind of like that because they were like, well, our website is super secure and, uh, they'll never find something in 30 minutes. And Sure, like there has has been occasions where we found very minor stuff, but like there's actually been situations where we found really bad vulnerabilities uh, minutes after looking at uh, the website. And so that kind of bootstrapped our network in Groningen, uh, the the place where we grew up and went to college. And um, that is also how we got into... um, hacking Blackboard at one point. uh, Because in our freshman year, uh, one of our professors challenged us to find as many vulnerabilities in Blackboard um, that was used by by our university. And we came back, and he was actually kind of (laughs) impressed. And so um, we had a long chat with uh, the local university. And then the the university itself contracted us to do uh, an actual vulnerability assessment of Blackboard. which then they used as leverage internally to uh, uh, ask Blackboard to like fix some or remediate some of the security vulnerabilities that we identified, and uh, uh, that relationship was especially between universities and Blackboard was really hard. Um, the 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 threat model for or risk assessment for Blackboard was very different from how the universities thought it was. But like, uh, the vulnerability assessment that we gave them, gave them, uh, the leverage they needed in order to, uh, remediate some of the problems that we identified.
0: And at some point, did you, did you ever publish that research, uh, about the, the
1: Blackboard vulnerabilities? Uh, not in a technical way. Um, we published, the the risk assessment. So for all of the vulnerabilities that we found, we um, we published what the what features could be abused uh, and what the impact would be on uh, each of them. But we never we never released the the actual exploit.
0: Gotcha. And how, was the company receptive to uh, kind of being publicly disclosed in, in this manner?
1: So at that point, uh, Blackboard did have. Uh, public advisories for security. Um, I think they were more receptive to it when, because the university was behind it. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially when other universities started contacting us to do the exact same thing because they had uh, either custom plugins or uh, Blackboard built custom stuff for them. Um, So that helped. Uh, But the, uh, after we wanted to publish some of the research, uh, uh, during an event, we got a cease and desist letter uh, from Blackboard saying that we weren't allowed to publish that research, which was kind of unfortunate.
0: Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's still still a, it's a, a challenge that you see today with, with disclosure that companies are not always uh, so happy with the, uh, their vulnerabilities being disclosed.
1: <laughs> right. I think this, is a, like, this was in 2010 or 2011 or something, uh, so it, it is a while ago, and I think... Uh, like Blackboard has changed a lot. There has been um, multiple security assessments uh, since, and I like it. It has definitely improved uh, a lot since then.
0: Gotcha. And, and so this kind of led you into doing greater vulnerability assessments in the Netherlands, correct?
1: Yeah, correct. Yeah, I think a funny anecdote there was um, the the ministry for the student loans uh, in the Netherlands uh, also has a register for um the um, um, For your diplomas essentially for your degrees, and um, after we kind of bootstrapped the network in Groningen, we ended up uh, at that ministry and uh, being the two people who uh, tested the uh, system that would cryptographically guarantee uh, the degrees of people um, that they would get from the university we were still going to. Mm. So, <laughs> being able to test that system uh, kind of pushed the limits of uh, dealing with ethics. Essentially, like what, what kind of? Um, we never had any bad intentions, obviously, but like it, the the question of like testing a system that at one point you will have a degree uh, recorded in, and <laughs> and doing that the right way is kind of a, an interesting dynamic. <laughs> when you're, a uh,
0: a, yeah, a little conflict of interest in it, certainly. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, I mean, we had the same conflict of interest when we were doing the the, the blackboard testing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, your grades are being recorded in in a system, and so um, I re- like it's also what I liked about it, like being given the opportunity of looking at these kind of systems that, um, and then still being able to provide value and uh, doing it in an ethical manner. I think that taught us uh, some some very valuable lessons uh, that we can still. Uh, still used today,
0: and so at some point through through, through this process, you decide to do to move to the Bay Area. Uh, did you decide to then co-found and start Hacker One before the move or after the move to San Francisco?
1: So um, how we got into San Francisco is is an interesting story. Um, so Marijn um one of the other co-founders of Hacker One. He, um, he had a house both here in the Bay Area and in Gernigan, in where we uh, grew up. And so um, Michael uh, Michiel, my other co-founder, he took an internship at a company where um, Ryan was one of the advisors. And so um, this was when we were still doing security consulting. And so uh, we talked a few times uh, with the three of us. And uh, at one point, Ryan was like, why don't you come over to my place in San Francisco? And Michu and I were like, well, sounds great. Um, if we don't get anything out of it, at least we have like a really nice three-week vacation. Sure. Uh, yeah, <laughs> like, why not? And so we, um, so we flew to, uh, we bought two tickets, flew to San Francisco and we stayed uh, at Brian's place. And um, at one point we were talking and the, the, the cake story came up again of like us hacking into a company and, uh, and then promising them, them cake. And so we, um, so what we did is what well, we emailed Facebook and Google, uh, because we thought it would be really cool to do something similar for, for those companies. So, uh, we emailed Facebook and we got a, uh, we got a, a message back from them saying like, well, we get tens of these emails every week. So nah, we, we don't have to meet. <laughs> and so, uh, um, we had a conversation about it and at one point, uh, Facebook said, uh, well, if you can find a vulnerability, then, uh, sure you can, you can meet with us. And so, uh, we found both a vulnerability in Facebook, uh, as well as in Google. And they were so impressed that, uh, they both invited us to, uh, to their headquarters. And so this is also when we first met our fourth co-founder, Alex Rice, um, but in a, in a very different setting. And so we initially did uh, security consulting for uh, Facebook and uh, Google and some other companies. And um, after we realized that a lot of these technology companies here in the Bay Area are so receptive to receiving security vulnerabilities, we made a list of the hundred companies that we thought would be cool to interact with or have a conversation with. And so we just, Uh, I think we went on uh, Crunchbase or something and just looked at like the most well-funded companies that we either knew or were really well-funded and we thought would be cool to to look at. And we just hacked every single one of them. And then after finding a vulnerability, uh, we would try to reach out to uh, the right person uh, in the company. And we realized that it was actually really hard to do that. Um, You, kind of want to do it through like a, like an executive or a co-founder because it, like security is a sensitive matter. But we realized that even though you reach out to, uh, or you think you, you reach out to the right person, um, some of them never even reply or some people don't reply, but fix the problem. Um, and then only a third actually got back to us and wanted to have a conversation with us. And so that kind of struck the whole idea of HackerOne, of like, how do we help companies streamline the process of receiving security vulnerabilities through a platform and then um, helping them, um, helping the hackers get a monetary reward for uh, what they found.
0: So basically it becomes kind of a broker site for, for both the organizations that want their software reviewed or or tested and a you know security researcher to be able to go in and and kind of be rewarded for doing that type of security research
1: yeah so i wouldn't call it a broker system like initially it was just like how do we streamline the process of reporting security vulnerabilities to the team um i wouldn't call it a broker because in in almost all the cases on hacker one we're not in between when a person nowadays submits a security vulnerability through the platform, they report it directly to the company. And I think there's a lot of benefits to that, especially around building relationships with the companies directly, as well as the company gets to um, uh, interact with the hackers directly. Um, We do help organizations in some of those cases where um, uh, they need additional resources in order to uh, help receiving those vulnerabilities and then escalate them uh, to their like into their organization. Uh, but that is a, uh, when we started HackerOne; uh, it was never intended as a as a it was a as a as a broker service uh, rather than um, just a platform for people to use to receive security vulnerabilities.
0: Gotcha. So it's it's more of a platform for enablement than than anything else.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then, I mean, obviously, on top of it, as, as the company matured, we introduced services like uh, the, the, the managed services, um, of like additional, additional hands for organizations to use in order to run these kind of programs for them.
0: Gotcha. And so how much in bounties has been paid out to date?
1: Yeah, great question. So um, we're nearing 20 million. Oh, wow. So we're at uh, 19 million... Uh, 680,000 or something. Um, so uh, in the next few weeks we'll hit uh, 20 million for
0: sure. Oh, wow. And so what's, what's the biggest uh, payout, single payout that's been uh, kind of awarded on the system?
1: So the single highest payout has been uh, $30,000 and it has been awarded twice. Um, but that's not the highest bounty you can actually get on the platform. Uh, there's programs who award up to $50,000 for single vulnerabilities. Uh, but those vulnerabilities haven't been found yet.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. And how many, you know, how many different researchers and hackers are, are,
1: are on the platform now? So in terms of signups, so people who are interested to get going, we're at about 130,000 people. Uh, in terms of uh, people who've actually contributed, like who've actually submitted a single vulnerability, it is close to 15,000 people. Uh, where um, uh, I think it's around 8,000 people who have actually been recognized and paid for a security vulnerability.
0: Oh wow! Okay, that's that's some pretty so impressive numbers.
1: I think uh, the interesting thing there here uh, there is that there's a lot of interest for people who like want to get into security. And so what we're trying to do with that large long tail, essentially of people who have not, who have not been active yet, is like we're, we're trying to give them the right resources to eventually become one of those people who have uh, uh, been contributing to the security of organizations. Uh, but it's amazing to see that there are so many people who are now interested in getting into security and who actually want to start hacking. Uh, Some of them just don't know how yet. Uh, So we're having an amazing opportunity of giving those people the right resources uh, to to start hacking.
0: Well, certainly. And it's it's probably a lot different than, than when kind of you and I have kind of grown up with it, where there was the illegality of it. I mean, what you're doing is providing a platform where somebody can test their skills and actually do it in a safe and ethical way uh, where the companies know about it and, and actually get a financial reward. So it seems to be a good place to kind of uh, have people focus their energies than necessarily on the exploitive aspects that don't necessarily get reported or are or, or not sanctioned, so so to speak.
1: Right. Yeah. If if only Hacker One would have existed when uh, when we were younger. Right. Yeah. But it's it, it's it's, <laughs> it's
0: you know I think we still have that issue where you know we're we're trying to find more and more security uh, people to fill the roles that are out there and and you know part of the reason we started the podcast and the, the question is always like you know how do I get started in cybersecurity and I think having platforms like Hacker One and other bug bounty programs are a great way because it it does. Um, Allow everybody to kind of play nice, and allow people to kind of get their hands dirty very quickly, um, just from their home keyboard. They don't have to necessarily go yeah. somewhere to a university. They can just try it out, see if it's something they they're attracted to.
1: Yeah, I still think it's um, when we were still doing the whole security consultant uh, consultancy thing, is that like with the companies that were slightly bigger who would like rotate over uh, multiple vendors is that we realize that other people find different things. Mm-hmm. And so what I like about like giving so many people the opportunity to find security vulnerabilities is that you will never find all of the bugs yourself, right? Like Linus Torval- Torvald said, uh, given enough uh, eyeballs, all bugs are shallow. And I think that is that applies to bug bounties as well as to functional bugs, it doesn't matter. And uh, I think if we look at our data and the diversity of of security vulnerabilities that people find, it is amazing to see how many more security vulnerabilities are found with um, uh, like in in bug bounty programs or or vulnerability disclosure programs, uh, or like at least by the community, than when they do a normal penetration test.
0: And so would you say that there's, there's greater value in bug bounty programs than say a standard penetration test?
1: I think the values are different. I think uh, there's different reasons to do penetration testing. Um, I think one of the biggest differences between the two is that with a penetration test, you have a guarantee that someone looked at a particular thing uh, or they can go behind a firewall or work together with your engineering team. And those kind of things are much harder to do with bug bounty programs. But I think that in terms of, essentially directing your penetration testing budget that you have every year by looking at the results of your bug bounty program is uh, a a smart thing to do. And so you can go like in a, in a broad sense, the bug bounty programs provide a lot of value across the board. And then when you start to see patterns in uh, either certain vulnerability types or uh, an increase in, in, uh, uh, vulnerability submissions in a particular asset that is when you can actually direct your penetration testing budget to do a deep dive on that particular asset and so it is it is essentially money better spent and they work really well next to each other and i don't believe that they will ever replace one another
0: gosh gotcha. so they're very complementary services as part of kind of a, a layered security approach
1: exactly yeah. and so so there's a few different. Uh, so we have we have a, a few different products essentially. And when we started HackerOne, we wanted to make sure that the 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 basic version of HackerOne would always be accessible to everyone. I I believe that everybody on this planet should have a way. Uh, sorry, every every organization on this planet should have a way to. Uh, receive security vulnerabilities, whether that is uh, through like a security app email address or through a hacker one. But I think everybody should be able to. And so, essentially, that is that is still uh, true today. And everybody can sign up themselves and um, write their own security page together with uh, the tools that we provide in the platform. Uh, but as companies get more sophisticated and they want to start uh, paying bug bounties, um, some monetary rewards or uh, they want to have deep integrations with their own systems, that is when uh, our people can help out to set that up for you. Uh, we can do a lot of hand-holding uh, in writing your security page, uh, how to structure your uh, rewards, uh, determining what kind of budget you need, and, and those kind of things. Um, and then there's a, there's a third thing that we, we thought was really interesting to see is that a lot of people... Um, and we we also saw this in the data, but the um, bug banners can also be scary, right? Like you're opening up to uh, a lot of people, or you're opening up your systems to a lot of people, and but you have no idea how secure they are. Like you've done your occasional pen testing, but we've seen situations where even after uh, multiple penetration tests, people still uh, rip it to shreds. Which is really good, but you want to have um, some predictability in in what you're going to spend on on bug bounties, right? And so that is um, that is the third product, which is called the Hacker One Challenge, and it's essentially like a uh, like a, a crowdsourced penetration test where we actually leverage the community but do it in a time box fashion, like uh, a penetration test, mm-hmm. and that gives us the the right amount of insight into uh, preparing the organization for uh, to eventually run a uh, a bug bounty program uh, in in the public.
0: Oh, very interesting. Now, um, what does your typical day look like? Do you still get to be a hacker and, and use the platform yourself? <laughs>
1: um, I sometimes question that that myself too of how my day looks like. Uh, it's being a founder is interesting. I, I think we're still at a point where I do whatever needs to be done for, for the company in order to help out. Uh, but I do them in in, in two areas, mainly. Uh, one is engineering. Um, I mean, I, I am an engineer by trade um, uh, and in hacker success. And uh, as a hacker myself, on a day-to-day basis, I interact a lot with the hackers. And uh, I still hack, but I don't hack for my own personal gain. I hack to basically spot new patterns, work out some of the things, and and try to create a scalable way or or create resources for the hackers to uh, find the security vulnerabilities that I find. Um, Because i much rather see that they are successful in finding the security vulnerabilities than than that I would be successful in finding those vulnerabilities. But I, I do recognize that by hacking myself and encouraging other people to find the same vulnerabilities. Uh, people are getting extremely excited about uh, going the extra mile of like, oh, I found this vulnerability, but what can I do with it? And how do I exploit it? And how do I chain it with other vulnerabilities, for example, uh, to, to increase the severity? And being able to carry that out to the community is um is, has been really awesome, and I hope to do that for, for a very long time.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, Forbes uh, recently also uh, named you, you know, one of the 30 under 30 in enterprise technology. So what has being a hacker and your, your security background taught you or prepared you for being an entrepreneur and a founder?
1: Ooh, I would say... Like from a from a company perspective, I think that, or an entrepreneur perspective, it is like always. Uh, it's essentially. I think the creativity is what is what drives um, the entrepreneurship, and at least for me, like I I really like to think outside the box. Of like, okay, we have a problem. How do we creatively overcome the the problem or the limitations that we have? And, uh, like, I, I think the, the good example there is, is the, is the cake example of like, how do we, like, even though we don't have any money and we don't have a network and people think, uh, security isn't important. How do we, what can we come up with to bootstrap our network and, and have people recognize our talents essentially? And how do we, um, like I think one of the biggest challenges that we got ourselves into is like I think the word hacker should actually be a positive thing, which is also mm-hmm. why we call our company Hacker One. And one of the biggest challenges that we face, uh and but I'm I'm pretty sure we'll get there is like how do we help the media and the world understand that hackers are actually good for the internet and for the world and that criminals are the people or the, the people who do the bad things. And so uh, because I strongly believe in a in a hacker culture where uh, people are always pushed to think about new uh, new ways of either building new features or overcoming limitations or in this case finding security vulnerabilities
0: yeah, so it definitely has an application is that that Creative and constructive mindset of starting a business is very same or same or similar mindset when you're when you're attacking a system, attacking the problems in business.
1: Right. I mean, I do have to say that I. I mean, I'm 26. Um, I don't have any experience with leading a company. Um, I mean. You you start to you start to pick up on a lot of things really quickly when your company grows so fast. But I think we also recognize that our talents are better used when not being um, like the CEO and that uh, or or like a, like an executive and have like a huge team reporting uh, uh, to me. I think that that also made us realize that like having a, a CEO in place who is very seasoned. Um, who has a lot of experience with uh, running companies, but is also extremely passionate and excited about what we do, is a far better decision than uh, trying to do it ourselves and, and either horribly fail or, or not like it at all.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, you know, being in an early stage startup and security that's in the Bay Area and growing. Um, you know, are are there pitfalls that you've recognized that you would give advice to avoid, uh, you know, that to give others to avoid as they start up their companies? Are there are there kind of those landmines out there as you start a company that you look back and say, "Wow, I wish I wish somebody had told me that was there."
1: Hmm. I think one of the things that that we did really late that I would say. Uh, you should do much earlier. Is um, we like every company has has a culture, right? And whether it is an, an implicit culture or a very explicit culture, but like there is always a culture. And uh, what I think we did too late was as founders sit down and define what that culture is. Like, what do we think should be is is so extremely important to us that we should always keep that at our company. And um, Interestingly enough, uh, and this was last year in October uh, during an all-hands, we did an exercise uh, where all of the employees at HackerOne tried to define the culture that they wanted uh, to be at HackerOne. And uh, obviously, as founders, we always thought about what that culture would be. And interestingly enough, and and uh, the the culture that the people wanted it to be was very much aligned with what the founders thought it should be. Uh, but we just never defined it, and so I think it was a really good good exercise because we realized that it aligned. But it was also really scary because we've never been extremely explicit about it. Um, and so, even though there was an implicit culture, uh, now being able to look back at it and um, point at the ball essentially, and tell them, "Well, but like this is not going to go over because we don't like that doesn't um, match with our our values," um, is actually really important. Uh, and I and I now realize how important it is to have uh, an explicit culture uh, uh, defined early on.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So, you know, kind of stepping back and looking, you know, more broad-based in the industry, um, do you see more software developers taking a more security-minded approach uh, when designing and integrating security into their, ap- their applications?
1: Um, so here's, here's my take on the problem. Um, I think it becomes much easier today to build software. Um, if you want to have a web shop today, you go online and you click through a wizard and you suddenly have a web shop. And um, if you want to build custom things, you go on Google and you copy paste some, some PHP, for example, or or some JavaScript and you, you paste it in in a text box and it works. Um, I think I think the people who are educated um, or, or like actually have a computer science background start, like definitely start to realize that security becomes more important, but I do think that a lot of the security that we benefit from today comes from, uh, the frameworks and not from, uh, the people who actually write the code. Um, which is actually a good thing, right? Like we need to take all of the individual security vulnerabilities at one point, and then like, try to tie it back into how do we, how do we, solve this problem universally, uh, which, uh, for example, Google, Google Chrome does a really good, um, does that really well of like, how do we secure our browser against some of the uh, most common attacks on the internet? And that, that doesn't rule out some of the uh, um, like, um, more complex security vulnerabilities on the server side but it definitely helps protect the end user. Um, and so that is something that we haven't figured out yet and that a lot of companies haven't figured out that, uh, out yet of like, how do we now take these security vulnerabilities that we know of and turn those into secure design principles for our engineers to um, not make the mistake again, but also make sure that whenever we hire a new person, that that new person uh, doesn't need to learn everything about security, uh, but can work within the framework uh, or the architecture that that uh, the other people uh, define um, and uh, and not make the, the not introduce the security vulnerabilities again. So we're, we're trying to we're at a point where security is on everybody's mind, but we're not doing the right thing with it, I would say. Yeah, I,
0: I would agree. And so, I mean, where, where do you think most organizations really kind of fails when it does come to their information security programs?
1: It's probably still people. Like, we always say that, like, whenever whenever someone finds a remote code execution, it is extremely exciting, right? Like, being able to execute commands or, or code on someone's server is like, it, it gives you a sense of um, accomplishment of, like, this is the worst thing that can happen to a company. But I think a lot of the data breaches that we read about in the news or, or in the paper uh, are still human errors of, like, it can be as easy as putting a hard drive on on, on the sidewalk, right, like, or uh, losing it, or social engineering, or, or people not... Choosing strong passwords or not using a second factor of any kind, and um, I think we're 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 trying to do as much as possible in order to educate people to make the right decisions, and we'll get there. But we're in in that regard, we're definitely uh, uh, we're further behind than than in a technical perspective, I would say.
0: Yeah, I think that one of the things that I, uh, Joe Carson on from Psychotic recently, we were talking about, you know, the things that kind of came out from um, uh, you know, Vegas this year at Black Hat and DEF CON was, you know, there still needs to be that people-centric approach. This is why we're failing when you have technology and engineers pushing security programs instead of looking at the human element because um, it's it's humans using these systems, it's humans writing the code, it's it's really where the problem lies, and until we kind of make the right enablement uh, and in tools put in place for the user, we're still going to have the same problems year after year after year.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: And so, you know, more people on the show are been talking to conferences and, you know, just talking about security in general are concerned certainly about IoT devices and, and those kind of going out in the marketplace and certainly not, you know, users not being enabled to know what they're getting. They're just plugging things in, a smart TV, a smart fridge, whatever it is. Um, are you starting to see, that there's been an increase of interest in in security research and maybe with bug bounty programs around IoT and maybe SCADA devices?
1: Yeah, uh, so definitely. Um, I I think the the, (laughs) – I always laugh when I think about this whole subject because uh, part of me thinks it is so extremely awesome that we hook everything up to the Internet and then, part of me is the complete opposite of like, why are we doing this in the first place?
0: <laughs> oh yeah, I, I have my 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 bed is connected to my home Wi-Fi for I don't know why I just did it. I thought it was right? cool, but it's probably yeah. this, you know it's 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 maintaining my health. It knows my my heartbeat. God knows who has access to that, but it's cool, so I like it. <laughs> right,
1: right, and like I I have two two Amazon Echoes in in my in my place, and like. People are like, why do you have like 14 microphones in your place registering <laughs> at, at whatever you say, right? And they were like, but it's so convenient, it's so cool. <laughs> and then part of me is like, yeah, I mean, they, they have a very valid point of like, whatever I do in my in my at my home, um, uh, part of it is being sent to, to Amazon, right? Um, anyway, to, to answer your question, uh, there's definitely an uptake in interest um, uh, in, in terms of uh, like trying to secure or trying to <clears throat> attack uh, IoT devices. I think it, it is harder for people to do because the, uh, the learning curve of uh, attacking IoT devices is much steeper than trying to get going with uh, web applications. But I think it is also harder from an organizational perspective to secure an IoT device. And not necessarily to fix a vulnerability, but if you don't have an update mechanism in place to actually fix a security vulnerability or, or people simply don't hook it up to the internet to download updates, that particular device will be vulnerable forever. And that is the scary part about it, of like, how do we, like whenever a zero day or not even a zero day, whenever an exploit is published, there's actually tons of devices that are vulnerable to uh uh, to that for that vulnerability, and then with web applications, that is usually very different uh, because whenever you patch the the security vulnerability, and it's, and I mean it's not in like some uh, uh, some open source component, um, the vulnerability is patched, and so uh, people don't need to do anything in order to update um, uh, uh, something on their end. And I think that, especially with IoT, we're we're starting to learn what kind of implications security has or, or privacy has in that regard. Um, and but we're we're definitely behind in terms of architecture uh, and frameworks that people can use uh, in order to build secure IoT devices. Um, and I I think going through um, a, a time where we actually talk about these vulnerabilities that we find during Black Hat or Def Con, and and we release those kind of things, will help people to build those frameworks that we eventually need uh, to keep connecting devices to the internet, but do it in a secure, uh, secure way, and in a way that our data is uh, is is still our own and and not uh, open to to everybody else.
0: Yeah. I mean it's still it's it's still an interesting concept and idea, but it's it's certainly something that's not going to slow down uh anytime in the near future. So again, I think building as you said, building in those frameworks so people can uh have the ability to develop these you know IoT applications or Internet of Things applications that can that can be updated and secured by the user um in a meaningful way, uh is, is going to be very important. Right. So, Gilbert, I I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Where where can people find you? What else are you up to these days, and and, uh, what are you plugging? Uh,
1: Well, I I tweet a lot of my my hacker thoughts uh, um, so people can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm also in a lot lot of uh, Slack instances, uh, which is where a lot of the hackers chat with each other. They collaborate. It used to be IRC. These days it is Slack. Um, so uh, on the on the Bug Bounty Bug Bounty forum and Bug Bounty world, people can can look me up, especially if they're interested in um, um, in in like starting starting with hacking. Um, other than that, I I recently got married, so I'm going on a honeymoon pretty soon. Oh, congrats! Uh, yeah, interesting thing though, paid for by Bug Bounties. So I, I found a few bugs and, uh, our honeymoon is, is being paid by, uh, with bug bounty money, which is always, it's like one of those things, right? Where, when you like get a bounty and you buy something really amazing from it, uh, it's one of those things that you, that you remember. Um, so yeah, coming, that, that's coming up, which is going to be really exciting. Uh, and it's, it's going to be, uh, it's gonna it's gonna give us some time to also think about like how the last five years went, which was a complete roller coaster of uh, like some really amazing things and uh, and see how the next five years will look and that's gonna be uh, that's gonna be really really cool.
0: Yeah, I bet. Well, again, I appreciate you taking the time today. I'll be sure to put uh, the links to the uh, your Twitter feed and things like that in the show notes so people can find you. But uh, thanks for joining me on the show today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, thanks.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com, where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.